And a question I want to I ask you, though don't answer it out loud, I want to ask you, how does someone become a Christian? How does someone become a believer? Ultimately, we know scripturally, God saves them. That's how someone comes to Himself. Now, another question is, why does God save people? How does, how does God save them? Why does He save them? Well, the Scriptures say that He saves them because He loves them. And what makes God love them? What our Scriptures will show and what is commonly understood and what is written about throughout the Scriptures is what makes people love God is that He chose to love them. So God chooses them, or what Scriptures say, He elects them to Himself. And this is, this is so great. Now, a couple of connected words, so they're different words, but they're connected to each other. They're, they're used in the Bible so many times. It just seems endless from beginning to end. Words like choose or to choose, elect, election, picking out, setting apart, predestined, ooh, predestination, foreordain, and others like that show that it is God choosing, God electing, and God selecting people to save from their sin, and it's a glorious truth. Now, one of the questions that, that I've been posing as we've been going through this six-week series on kind of understanding, if I could give you what I, what I like to call like a lens of Scripture, all of us approach Scripture through a certain set of lenses, whether you know it or not. So all of us are approaching Scripture in some way. I think it's really helpful for us to understand how we look at God through the Scriptures. And I think our passage this morning and what is known as the doctrine of election actually set up a foundation for how you and I can actually see God from what He has said about Himself through His Scriptures. So the question I posed several weeks ago and that I'm posing today is, can you choose Christ? Can you, an individual person, choose Christ? And what would you base that selection on or that choice on? Yes, you're called to believe. Yes, you're called to trust. Yes, you're called to rest and receive Christ. But, but I think Scripture really poses the question, who really chooses who? And does it make you a little bit nervous? I'm a little bit nervous talking about the doctrine of election. I don't know why. I've known it my whole life. I've been raised within it. It's literally written in the Bible but forever, people freak out and hate each other and fire people, please don't, because of the doctrine of election. So my sermon this morning is on the doctrine of election. You don't have to turn there, but I want to bring your attention to what is written about in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. So the title of my sermon is The Choice of Dry Bones. And there is a prophecy and an action in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 37 about a valley of dry bones who were awakened and brought to life. This is known as the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. This, this chapter is a vision giving, given to the prophet Ezekiel where he's shown a, a valley full of dry human bones. So for those of us raised in the 90s as children, I'm thinking of Lion King and the, the valley of where Scar ruled and reigned. I know some of you know what I'm talking about. Have that in mind, where he is commanded, Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy to these bones. Think about it. You are commanding bones with the voice that is from the Lord, declaring to these bones to come back to life. And the prophecy is a clear symbol of what God does. He causes dead, worthless, decaying skeletons to be brought back to life by being given flesh. 
having breath breathed into them and new life that then walks. It's an incredible picture on its own, but then it's also to the Christian an incredible sign of all that God does to his people. Any Christian will look at this and see this as a symbol or a parable of exactly what happens to any believer by faith. They who were once dead in their sins are made alive exclusively, Ezekiel chapter 37 says, exclusively by Ephesians, exclusively by what Jesus does with Lazarus, exclusively by God. Dead bones are now alive. They did not close themselves. They did not resurrect themselves. They did not build within themselves muscles and tendons. They did not give themselves breath, a pumping heart, a triggering mind, a capacity to go, (gasps) so all of us who are in Christ were once dead, but now alive by God's unconditional work. And it's incredible to see. The reason why I'm bringing this up, why would I preach a sermon on this? The reason why I'm bringing this up is I think you and I will be given from the word a fresh amount of joy and satisfaction and comfort of the God who reigns over everything, sustains everything, did not accidentally call out to you. You weren't just caught up in a storm of chaos and then thousands of years later, him go, oh yeah, Bob, I forgot about Bob. But rather God in his sovereignty, in his care, and most importantly, we see from the scriptures, in his love, Christian knows you from before the foundation of the world. Now, last week, Romans chapter 3 taught us that we are dead in our sins. And this week from Ephesians 1, I want us to see that the initial action of God saving you to himself is him choosing you from before the foundation of the world. Those who are given faith The Bible says again and again and again and again and again, we're given, granted, imparted, transmitted faith and belief. Today from Ephesians 1, I want Paul to tell us and instruct us on how God's initiating grace is one of the most comforting and encouraging things you will ever know. In many ways, the doctrine of election is not about election at all. The doctrine of election is truly the doctrine of humility, where where we, by God's grace, are given all of his spiritual blessings. It's amazing. So uh, I changed my sermon (laughs) very late last night. So if you're using an outline, it will really not help you that much. Uh, At about 12.30, I thought, man, I am, I gave the example in my Sunday school this morning. It is like I am trying to stuff a suitcase full of unironed, messy clothes, just stuffing it again. So what I want to do is I want to make two suitcases out of one, so I'm going to push back part of the sermon to next week. But today I want to talk about what election is not biblically and what election is. And then next week what I want to talk about, God willing, is how a true understanding of biblical election actually changes everything. And, and by everything, I literally mean everything in your entire life. And there is nothing to fear in God's grace. All right, so what is election not? Point number one. What is election not? Three three words. I'll start with the letter F. Fatalism is the first one. What election is not, it's opponents, so I'm going to go through these quickly, opponents of 
the doctrine of unconditional election. So when I think of election, I don't think of conditional. I think of unconditional. The doctrine of unconditional election is being accused as being fatalistic or fatalism. So what election is not, it's not fatalism. Fatalism says that the events are going to happen regardless of man's choice, regardless of anyone's decisions. Events are just going to happen. It is what it is, we say commonly. And that is an that is an unbiblical view of God's Word. It's unbiblical, meaning that it's against God's Word. It's not just non-biblical, meaning it's not in the Bible. It's unbiblical in that it's against God's Word. It teaches that blind, this fatalism, it teaches that blind, impersonal forces control everything. An impersonal determinism, claiming fate is aimless and random. No matter what people say, think, or do, all their choices are meaningless. This is why it's a godless doctrine. This is not the doctrine of unconditional election. On the other hand, the biblical doctrine of election teaches that God has a loving, divine goal, and He is working all things out according to His will and His purpose. So it's not fatalistic. Second thing, it is accused as being unfair. It's accused of being unfair. So this is talking about fairness. Romans chapter 9, verse 15 says that, and this is Paul referring back to Moses, for he says to Moses, is God saying to Moses, Romans 9, God saying to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have confession, compassion. The response to this often is, that's unfair. Is it unfair? The accusation is that this is unfair. The accusation is that this is unjust, or that God, who we worship and see and love, according to what he says, he is being accused of being unjust. Now, Paul reminds us of what Moses said. It's God's divine right to accomplish mercy as he wants. It's God's divine right to accomplish mercy as he wants. He says, from the beginning, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It's up, to, it's up to him to impart mercy. It's also up to him to impart justice. Those categories do not equal injustice. Now, the late theologian R.C. Sproul, uh, usually when he teaches on this, likes to draw a picture on a blackboard of a group of stick figures. So you imagine blackboard up here, six stick figures. And then he circles three in this category, and then three in another. These, these people represent the masses of humanity. So all six stick figures represent the masses of humanity, but he circles two categories of people. He says, I'll put stick figures on the board, and I'll put a circle around three of them, and another circle around the other three, and the circle on the left, so just imagine this in your mind, the circle on the left represents the people who receive the unspeakable gift of divine grace and election. So over here are people who receive the divine gift of God's selection. And the circle on the right represents those who do not. So you got figures, these receive grace, these do not. Now, if God sovereignly chooses to grant His grace on some sinners and not grace on the others, is there any violation of His justice? If we look at those on the right who do not receive grace, this is still in his analogy, if we look at those on the right who do not receive his grace, do they receive something they don't deserve? So according to the scriptures, this is what I talked about last week, all of us, the, the thing that you and I have in common, so sad, 
is that we are all morally incapable of righteousness. We are all what is called totally depraved. We are all, as the Bible would say, sinners. We're all separate from God. So by them getting what he gives them, do they receive something that is not just? No, of course not. If God allows these sinners to perish, is he treating them unjustly? Of course not. One group receives grace and mercy. The other group receives justice. So the accusation of God summoning people to himself, if the accusation is, that's not fair, Christian, I need you to understand, you do not want fairness. You do not want fairness in God's eyes. Fairness would be all of us deceiving the wrath that we deserve. But in God's grace and mercy, friend, he has called you to himself. In spite of yourself, he has called you to himself. See how it's glorious and so good. Now, election, thirdly, in this first section, it is, election is not foreknowledge, like you and I often think of foreknowledge. The doctrine of election is not foreknowledge, as you and I often think of foreknowledge. So I think it's, it's right to say that everyone believes in election and predestination. If you don't, it's because you don't read the Bible, or you don't believe in the Bible. The words are there, just like rocks are in the Bible. It'd be weird if you said, I don't believe in rocks. It's like, they're right. What are you talking about? Look at that. There are Christians around us. We have to believe in this. Now, there are sides of how people understand and see the idea of election. There, there are people who see election as conditional by what they do, and those who see election as unconditional by what they do. So I argue, and I think I'm right, of the idea of unconditional election. So to deny election is to deny the Bible because of the terms are found throughout Scripture. The real question is whether you believe that election is conditional or unconditional. Are you chosen by grace or by your condition. If grace means unmerited favor, then the Bible clearly teaches that nothing, including your response to the gospel, can be the thing that merits the gospel's favor. The Bible, I think, clearly teaches that nothing, we'll get into it later, nothing, including your response, can be the thing that merits God's favor. So some will say that God will elect you, but he will elect you based on what they say is foreknowledge. They say that God has foreknowledge when you are, and then, or God has foreknowledge in who you are, and then elects you. Uh, But to quote the Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Election doesn't equal foreknowledge like most people use it. It does mean foreknowledge and how God uses it. But we often use foreknowledge as a way to say chance or likelihood. You know, when I proposed to Brooke, I had a pretty good understanding that she would say yes, mostly because I accidentally told her a week in advance that I was going to propose on her on Saturday night. So she had an entire week to go away. So I had, you could say, foreknowledge, if I'm using that word improperly, I had foreknowledge that she would say yes. Or if you run into someone's backyard and they have a big, you know, bull mastiff and he's looking at you, he's drooling out of his mouth. You might say there's a strong likelihood, possibly even foreknowledge if you're using that word incorrectly, that that dog may bite you or may run after you. Now, he may not, but there's a pretty good chance that if you invade a dog's territory, he's going to come after you. That's how often we think of the word foreknowledge, but that that is not how the Bible uses foreknowledge. So the most common error among Christians, I think in this category about predestination, arises from a misreading of Romans chapter 8. So if you have the Bible, if you have a Bible, turn left to the book of Romans, chapter 8. The book of Romans, chapter 8. 
about three, three books to the left, two books to the left. Romans chapter 8, and go to verse 29. This is where the big word foreknowledge is stated or foreknown. Let me start reading from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and go through verse 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And those who are called according to His purpose. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of a son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And then in verse 30, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified, starting with His action of foreknew. Now, foreknowledge on its definitional use. Foreknowledge doesn't mean God looked down what is called the hallways of history or the tunnel of time, then foreseeing what you and I would do, and then goes back and goes, okay, I will elect them based on what I foresaw or what I saw in advance. That's how, that's how people often think of this word, but that's not how the Scriptures use this word. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 does not say that God foreknew certain decisions. It does not say He foreknew certain professions and then predestinates us based on that. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says that God foreknew people, souls, hearts. God foreknew certain people. And so a study of the idea of knowledge in the Bible will show that it involves a choice of intimate relations. So when you think of foreknowledge, this is a word that people get caught up on, I want you to think of relationships between person and person. So when Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, that is not looking down the tunnel of time and seeing if he likes Eve and then has a baby with her, it's that he had a relationship with her in time and space. Or God knew Jeremiah while the prophet was still in the womb. While he was still in the womb, it says that he foreknew Jeremiah. Or Jesus knew no sin. Same, same kind of breakdown of the same word. He knew no sin. Or it says that Jesus was not known by the world. With that understanding, just putting things together, this is what doctrine is, seeing, seeing common themes throughout the Scripture, pulling them down and defining them. That allows us to understand Romans chapter 8, verse 29, means that God foreloved certain people and predestined them. He chose them. They didn't choose Him. They didn't react. But He knew them. So whenever foreknow is used in the Scriptures, it is always intimately relational. It is always intimately relational. It's not mere awareness. Uh, bring your attention. You don't have to turn there to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. It says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So if you, if you use foreknown properly as like a chance or looking down the tunnel of time, that would, <laughs> man, we get into some sticky stuff here. That would be a, great, a, a giant disillusion of the Trinity himself where God the Father looks down the tunnel of time, sees how Jesus will be and goes, that's my son. That is, that is a damning thing. But rather Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was loved 
before the foundation of the world by the Father. The Father didn't look down the tunnel of time and see the Son popping up and saying, that looks good. He'll be my Son. So the foreknowledge view is wrong because it misconstrues words and it sees all of history as some great movie that God watches and then reacts to. And that makes time sovereign, not the creator of time. Okay, so there are a lot of other things that election is not. I want, to, I want us to look at, now press really in to look at what election is. This will be the entirety of the rest of my, our time together. What election is, what does it mean? What is it? Now, accurate statements on biblical words are of great importance. There are people who go, I don't care about theology. Let's just talk about this or that. I don't really want to talk about theology. And to you, I want to say, give yourself to the glorious weight of the Scriptures as the rest of life presses down on you, realizing that true biblical theology lifts you up. No doctrine of Scripture has perhaps suffered so much damage from the wrong conception of rivals than this, the, the incorrect description of friends even as the doctrine of election. So the true doctrine of election, I believe, is as follows. God has, plea, God has been pleased from all eternity to choose certain men and women out of mankind whom by His counsel, secret to us, He has decreed to save by Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's like a long run-on sentence, but God has been pleased from all eternity past to save some men and women according to the counsel which is secret to us. He has then decreed to save them by later the work of Christ. So no one is saved except those who are chosen. That's why it's controversial. So the Scriptures give God's people in several places names. One of those names is called God's elect. So we have, we have to take that definition as what it is. And the choice of appointment of them is to eternal life, which is called God's election. So those men and women whom God has chosen from all eternity, He will call salvifically in time by His Spirit's regenerating work, convincing them of their sin, leading them to an understanding of Christ, stirring within them affections then of faith and repentance. And by that, he converts, renews, sanctifies these once lost people now are alive. And the starting point is not on the condition of them, but on the condition of him. He keeps them by his grace from falling away entirely and finally brings them to safe glory. Now, to give away the goods in a couple of weeks, if you save yourself, you can logically lose yourself. And the beauty of the doctrine of election is that God loved you, Christian, and will not lose you. You see how this is so comforting, and, and it builds up a sense of confidence within us that I can pursue the Lord in the misery of life, knowing that I am not walking on a bridge that may give out halfway through because I didn't build it, but he's the one who's sustaining me. In short, God's eternal election is the first link in that chain of sinner salvation of which heavenly glory is the end. Nobody ever repents, believes, and are born again except those whom God has elected for salvation. This is, this is what the Lord, word of the Lord says. The primary and original cause of a saint's being, what he is, is eternal God's election. Now, okay, 
this doctrine, a combo of understanding scriptures, is no doubt especially deep and mysterious and hard to grasp. If this is hard for you, you are in good company. Remember, I was up till 1230 last night, and I am supposed to be a professional at this. We have no eyes to see it fully because we have not seen Jesus' face perfectly. We have no line to comprehend it thoroughly because we are still on this side of heaven. No part of the Christian religion has been so much disputed, rejected, and reviled as this, though. None has called forth so much hostility against God, which ironically is the grand mark of a carnal mind. How could he do that? (laughs) You are acting as if you are God. So many so-called Christians profess to believe in the atonement of Christ, the salvation by grace, justification by faith, and yet refuse to look at the doctrine of unconditional election. In fact, the very mention of the word to some persons is enough to call forth expressions of passionate anger. When I was in my first year of seminary, I made a connection with someone in the city who was over, you could say, almost like a bishop of, I think there were like 70 Baptist churches, an area association. And we got together, we had coffee, he asked me about family and all that, and he said, I just have one question before we start. Do you believe in the doctrine of election? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, yeah, you're not going to get a job in Oklahoma. So I moved to Albuquerque. No. (laughs) But but kind of. So many so-called Christians profess to believe in the atonement, salvation by grace, justification by faith, and yet refuse to look at the doctrine of unconditional election. The very mention of the word brings up passionate anger or expressions of hate. So big question, is the doctrine of election plainly stated, the doctrine of unconditional election plainly stated in Scripture? This is the whole question which is an honest Christian has to work through. All of us have to work through this because it's, if it's not in the book of God, then let it be discarded. If it's there, let us receive it with reverence as part of divine revelation and humbly believe, even where we are not able to understand it completely or explain it fully. What then is written in the Scriptures? Is election in the Bible or is it not? Does it speak of itself as being unconditional on our part or is it conditional on ours? Does the Bible speak of certain persons as God's elect or not? Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 24, verse 22. For the elect's sake, the days shall be shortened. Mark chapter 13, verse 22, if it were possible, they should deceive even the elect. Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, he shall send his angels and they shall gather together his elect. Luke chapter 18, verse 7, shall not God avenge his own elect? Here's what Paul says, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of a son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, read earlier. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, the scripture that we'll go through in a moment. God has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, 
which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Here's what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then finally, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Or to quote Ezekiel 37, how shall these bones live? Now, I put these 11 texts before you, and I ask you to consider them and meditate on them. They, they will become life to you, encourage to you. If words have any meaning at all, they appear to me to teach most plainly the doctrine of personal, unconditional election. And in the face of such texts, we cannot refuse to believe what is scriptural in doctrine. We cannot shut our eyes against the plain, obvious sense of biblical language. And if we do, we shouldn't have any ground to stand on in pressing the gospel toward an unconverted person. The call of the gospel is for you to take God's Word and place it in front of someone's eyes. If you don't think what what's God's Word is true or inerrant or infallible, then why would you put it in front of someone's face? The 11 texts quoted seem to my mind to prove conclusively that personal, unconditional election is a doctrine of Scripture. So, uh, friends, I want you to receive it as God's Word, not because I said these. These are God's Scriptures. Receive them as God's Word. Believe it as His good Word. As difficult as it may be, it's intended to be a joyful thing. And after all, no matter what people say, there is no denying that election of some men and some women to salvation is a simple matter of fact. We all know not every person is saved. That in many ways is the motivation and the work of our own evangelism. That you do not have what God has granted to me. And I want to put what God has granted to me in Christ in front of you and call you and beg you to turn to the one who has offered you everything. We all know not every person is saved and we know that those who are saved owe their salvation entirely to the free grace of God and the calling of His Spirit, that no man can all explain why some are called to salvation and others are not called. You cannot deny that. And in fact, it was a normal thing in the 80s and 90s to say, if you were to arrive in heaven today and God were to look at you and say, why should I let you in? That was a normal question in those time, that day and time. That is not going to be the question. That is not going to be what's said when you and I get to heaven. I would imagine that when you and I get to the pearly gates, whatever they will look like, we will look at them and we will say, why me? Do you not know my rap sheet? Have you not seen the holiness of your son? He's in there. Why me? You've heard me say it before, but the great living preaching theologian, Alistair Begg, cautions us that whenever we might give our testimony, and it starts with anything other than he, we are on a track of heresy. How did the Lord save you? It is not, well, I, well, we, well, I did this or well, I did that, but he saved me from my sins to the glory of God's name that I don't understand it. Right views of human nature are certain to lead us to the same conclusion, and we must admit that we are all naturally dead in the trespasses and sins that we have committed. We have no power to turn to God. Dead bones cannot breathe. Once we come to that, 
that all spiritual life in the heart of man must begin with God. Once we come to that, that it's him who created the world by saying, let there be light, and then there was light, that it must shine then into the hearts of men and create life within men. Once we admit that God does not enlighten all people in this manner, but some, and that he acts in this matter entirely as a sovereign, giving no account to his matters. Once we admit this and then see where we are, then we must admit the the wholeness of the doctrine of unconditional election. Right views of God's nature and character as revealed in the Bible appear to me to bring us to the same position. Why? Me. That's where mercy and grace meet. That he governs all things by his providence. That he who does not even let a sparrow fall to the ground without him, we have to recognize and believe that he works all things according to his plan like, a, like an architect with perfect knowledge and that nothing concerning his saints as he chooses his most excellent work is left to chance. It is no accident. Friends, in life there is no such thing as luck. Man, praise God for that. All right, so God's electing work finally to our passage in the book of Ephesians. We have time. No one look around. God's ele- Imagine if I were going to continue in point three. God's electing, God's choosing, God's initiating. I just have to tell you, every now and then, Brooke will ask me on Saturday, can you break this message into two? And I always say, why would I ever do that? And then last night when I went to bed at one or two, she said, what are you doing? And I said, I broke up the message into two messages. And she said, thank goodness. God's election, God's choice, God's initiating grace upon sinners is everywhere in the Bible. Now, how do we make sense of it? See Ephesians 1, one of the most encouraging set of verses in the Scriptures. Now, if you look at things, uh, if you look at historical things like big confessions, whether it's the Westminster, the Canon of Dort, the London Confession of Faith, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, Gospel Coalition Confession of Faith, the Cambridge Confession, the Belgic Confession, these big historic confessions, they all approach some doctrine carefully, subtly, patiently. Most confessional authors write in a space and time in a way where they are intensely aware of the controversy that surrounds a particular doctrine. So if you were going to write a doctrine of how you see the Scripture, a doctrine of human sexuality today, 2023, you would be very careful, you'd be very choice with your words. You'd be very patient knowing that everyone is kind of thinking about this, and if, and if I get this wrong, we're going to mess up a lot of people who follow this doctrine or who follow this confession. These people want to be careful, sensitive, and over-the-top and explanatory. But look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul seems very unaware of any controversy about election. He blurts it out boldly, unembarrassed. Boom, there it is. He begins his letter in a very Pauline way. He says, I, Paul, am an apostle. He speaks a blessing over the saints and praises God for God's grace and goodness given to them in Christ. And then without breaking any stride, he blurts out praise and glory about election and predestination. Do you see that there in that verse, verse 4? Election is not an incidental theme for Paul. It's not something to hide. It's not something that he reserved for mature Christians who like thick leather-bound books. No, Right out of the gate. I, Paul, praise God for his electing work, brothers. Why? Because it's so central. It's so unifying. 
hey, dear Christians in Ephesus, I'm going to teach you the gospel again. In the latter half of the letter, I'm going to tell you how to live in light of the gospel. That's the book of Ephesians. And praise God collectively for all of us for the unification that all us sinners have because of God's electing work. We are all in this together because of God's initiating process. In these few verses, Paul not only teaches us some of the content of this doctrine, but also how to think about it. He says so naturally, so easily, so confidently, it challenges our habit to be hesitant wimps when it comes to theology. It's his life. In these few verses, he boasts in the glorious work of God, who in the, I went to a birthday party on Friday night of an older gentleman who turned 70 years old, and he spoke before the party kind of began. And, and what was amazing is his, his time at the microphone was just purely spent talking about God. And the guy's 70 years old. I'd love to be 70 years old. That's a long life, right? There's friends around him. There's great experience. Sure, there's lows, but man, there's highs. And what does he talk about? The grace of God in his life. What, how's Paul starting this letter out to a church that needs instruction? Guys, look at what God has done. Who in the world would ever be fearful of talking about predestination or election? Not Paul. Look at the text. Paul begins his letter by celebrating God's exclusive action in choosing us. The language there, he chose us, his own people. For what? For salvation. He says that God blesses his saints with every spiritual blessing, not half spiritual blessing, but every spiritual blessing. You see that in verse 3. And he fully chose us to be, in verse 4, holy. He predestined us. He, it says, predetermined us to be adopted, not to give us a shot, not, not to have great hope in what would happen. He didn't go halvesies with our will, but he predestined us to be adopted as his children. And praise God, because we wouldn't choose him. Paul makes so clear that God is the one the only one, exclusively, with zero help or input from the peanut gallery or felt board, that God is the one who chooses his own people in Christ. And so on what basis or foundation does this choosing take place? God, does God choose us for salvation based on something in us or based on God's will? Well, Paul leaves no confusion with this in his letter, in this burst out in glory of God's electing grace. Paul leaves no confusion on the table. And just an aside, after last week, seeing Romans that we have zero righteousness on our own to offer God. So, of course, he has to do this or we would be helpless. Paul explains, look at this verse. Did he look at your goodness in life and then decide? No. It was done, quote, before the foundation of the world, end quote. And since he chose us before we ever existed, that no doubt means the reason for choosing us in God is in God and not in us. Second, Paul says that we were chosen in something. Look at verse 5. We were chosen in Christ, not in our work or our nature or our character or even our possibility, but we were chosen in Christ. Preposition means everything there. And look at verse 6. In the one whom God loves. God himself, in the apostolic writing of Paul, says that God the Father loves God the Son more than anything. So we should have confidence that when we were chosen in Christ, in the one whom God loves, that we're talking about the very one whom God loves. The, 
And praise God for this, because God's electing choice of you, when he sees a son, he also sees you affectionately too. Meaning, and so, we are chosen not for who we are, praise God, but for who Christ is, our Savior. We were chosen based on Christ. So when we are wrapped in righteous robes, Paul will later says, in the glory of Christ, we have confidence in that, that it clothes our iniquity. It covers our blemishes. It allows us to not be seen by the spots that we have committed for ourselves. Now, third, look, look at verse five. Um, I said third, but I have no idea where I am in like numbers and letters and everything else. But look at verse five. Paul says that we are chosen in accordance with God's pleasure and God's will. Why did God choose you? Friend, drink this because he wanted to. And that's so good. He wanted you. He chose you. God is utterly sovereign in this. His will, not ours, is foundational in salvation. And this is where people get caught up. They go back to the argument of, what about my free will? What about my choice? Friend, notice that Paul doesn't say anything about human free will here. And as a matter of election and salvation, this is importantly true. And in fact, literally nowhere in the Bible is the phrase free will printed. It's not there. You will not find your free will in the Bible. That doesn't mean you do not have a will. And praise God, it is under his care. Paul says, praise God, because in my freedom, think of this, if you want your free will, Paul says that in our freedom, we would go back and we would choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You want a new paradise like Adam had? You think you're better than Adam? You think you learn more than him? That guy had everything. And what did he choose? By his free will. We have to remember that we are morally unable and totally depraved, but by the will of God, he brings us to fruition. So the doctrine of election is, if anything, it grounds us on God and not us. This is really why people have a problem with election. Friend, here's why you have a problem with election. I'm going to stick my finger out. It's because you think everything's about you. That's where the rubber hits the road. If it's about you, then yes, it is up to you. Do you want it to be about you? If it's not about you, then who is it about? A lot of people will cower and argue against sovereign election because they say it's a problem for a variety of reasons, but it's not a problem. It's a solution. God's sovereign election is the solution because it glorifies God at every point in salvation and draws us away from ourselves to God. We are trained from the beginning to make everything about us, but from the beginning it was about God. It glorifies God because it shows the work of salvation at every point as God's good work. He originates the plan of salvation for each one of the elect in eternity. He sends his son to die for those elect ones. He draws elect, sinner, elect sinners by his irresistible spirit to, the faith, to have faith in his son. And so we are regularly tempted to approach the gospel truth by thinking and focusing on our needs and our strengths, but we should first break into thanksgiving for all that he, God has done like Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. 
Let me close with this. A long time ago, there was a very famous baseball player who was retired at this time but had a son who was in many ways just like this Hall of Fame baseball player. The father and son practiced together. It's like they were walking, talking figures of one another, and it was finally time for this kid to play eight and under baseball. And you would imagine the anticipation that would be surrounding this eight-year-old. Man, you could be just like your dad, and your dad is really good, right? A lot of pressure, a lot of great things. Well, he's leadoff batter, because what great batter in eight and under isn't the leadoff batter? Sorry for everyone else like me, who's fifth hole, it'll be fine. But he goes up to the plate, first strike, hits a homer out of the park, just like his dad. Second time at the plate, he strikes out. Well, that's baseball. You know, you strike out. It's not every, it's not all bows and rainbows. But the third time, he hits a stand-up double. And everyone's like, imagine what this kid is going to be. Imagine the joy that that kid had in his heart. Imagine the joy that that dad had in his heart. Like, finally, finally. He got into the car. He's so excited. Looks at his dad. and He's like, can you believe it? That was so awesome. Did you see what I did the first time? I know what I did the second time. It was a really good pitcher. Machine pit. It was a really good pitcher. You see what I did the third time? Stand up double. That's really good. You had tons of those, dad. The dad looks at him and says, I know. But honestly, I wish you had struck out every time. (laughs) What a weird dad, right? I wish you'd struck out every time. And the kid goes, what? Why? And the dad looked at him. He said, because if you'd struck out three times and you got in this car and I said I loved you, you would know that it's not because of what you've done. Son, I love you. I don't care if you're a baseball player. I don't care if you're good. I don't care if you strike out every time. I love you because you're mine. Friends, when you and I see the scope of God intimately choosing you to be his son or his daughter, you can know that for the rest of your days that it's because of his love and not your work. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that it is to your word that we can turn for instruction and reproof and joy and hope and in love, we ask desperately that you would build up in us an understanding of your love and your grace and your mercy, your power and your glory. O oh Lord, lift yourself up so that we may see you rightly. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Amen.